Hello, welcome to the Democracy Group and our end of the year best of 2023 series. From now until the end of the year, we'll be showcasing some of our network's favorite episodes from across our different shows. If you'd like to hear more episodes just like this, then head over to democracygroup.org. We hope that you have a wonderful end of your year and enjoy today's episode. It was not predestined. It was not if you just wait around, it got better. It didn't. It wouldn't have gotten better. It was because people decided to make it better. So the the, the lesson of that now is it's not going to get better unless we make it better. It's up to us. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, and I am so glad to be with you for this episode. And thank you for joining us for Join or Die. <laughs> Sounds very ominous. Actually, though, it is very serious. Join or Die. This is part of the Unum Digital Series with guests Dr. Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett. This is very exciting. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. It's www.floridahumanities.org. As I've already been alluding to it on this episode, we get to hang out with a living legend and we get to hear his thinking on the topic he's been writing about and write about for many years the breakdown of our social bonds and sense of connectedness. You might have heard of, or perhaps you've even read Dr. Putnam's now iconic book, Bowling Alone. The, the full title is Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. Man, if you read it back in the early 2000s, it's definitely worth reading again, because what he was articulating back then is absolutely prescient. We're also joined by Shailen Romney Garrett, his co-author, on the upswing, how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again. And that's really what we're up to here. We're pointing the way forward to solving some of these societal problems that have ailed us for too long. But the good news is there is a way forward and that's what they'll be talking about today, along with Village Square's founder, Liz Joyner, who facilitates the program. Liz introduces these wonderful guests and you're in great hands with her. So time to turn it over for proper introductions. Liz, take it away. Good evening, everyone. I'm Liz Joyner, founder and president of the Village Square. And on behalf of the Village Square and Florida Humanities, we're delighted you've joined us tonight for Join or Die, why you should join a club and why the fate of America depends on it. This program is part of a multi-year series of digital programs, UNUM, Democracy Reignited, presented in partnership with Florida Humanities, exploring the past, present, and future of the American idea as it exists on paper, in the hearts of our people, and as it manifests in our lives. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure, in fact, it's a bucket list item for me, 
to introduce you to tonight's special guest. Robert D. Putnam is the Malkin Research Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University and a former dean of the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Nationally honored as a leading humanist and a renowned scientist, he has written 14 books, including the best-selling Our Kids and Bowling Alone, and has consulted for four U.S. presidents. In 2012, President Obama awarded him the National Humanities Medal, the nation's highest honor for contributions to the humanities. Dr. Putnam, what a pleasure it is to have you here tonight. It's, Liz, it's a great pleasure to be with you and your, and your audience. We're, I'm looking forward to this conversation a lot. I'm going to give a disclaimer, even though I can't tell that you're actually you've got a, you've got a cold feeling a little bad tonight, but you sound good and look great. I'm so, to speak really loud. <laughs> it is also my distinct pleasure to introduce Shaylin Romney Garrett. She is a writer and award winning social entrepreneur. She is a founding contributor to Weave, the Social Fabric Project and Aspen Institute Initiative. She also contributed to Dr. Robert D. Putnam and David Campbell's American Grace. And she is the co-author with Dr. Putnam of um, The Upswing, which we'll talk about tonight. Shaylin holds a degree in government from Harvard University and is a return Peace Corps volunteer. Shaylin, it is great to have you here tonight. Thank you so much. Um, I'm obviously going to have to get a little, I'm going to get serious now about the interview because I'm just, I'm really, this really is something that is just such a joy to us because we have been learning from you for decades now here at the Village Square. Um, so I'm going to go ahead tonight and, and divide our conversation into two parts. And the first part is the problem. And the second one is what in the world we do about it. So I, I was actually taken when I reread uh, Bowling Alone for this um, evening that Bowling Alone is kind of a whodunit. And, and it, it, it kind of walks you through, well, could it be this? Who killed our social capital? And, and so I want to kind of start there um, tonight mostly, and I'm going to start with, an, um, with a quote from the film, which is just beautiful. And if, um, if our audience hasn't watched it yet, you've got through Sunday to watch it with the link you pro we provided. So I really highly recommend it. So again, the film is called Join or Die, a film about why you should join a club and why the fate of America depends on it. And it was made by your student, uh, Bob, Pete Davis and his sister, Rebecca, in what the film calls the rosy roaring 90s. And here's Pete from the movie. He says, back then, Mark Zuckerberger was the time person of the year. Every problem had a TED Talk solution. So while we were transfixed by the latest social network, Bob was calling us to pay attention to neighborhood networks and the presidents of our local civic clubs. And they, Bob had found, weren't doing so well. And that wouldn't bode well for American democracy. I can see now that Bob was right to be worried. American democracy was in trouble. So my question to you, Bob, is many moons ago, um, you started this journey in some ways by a trip to Italy. Tell, tell us what you found there and what in the world it has to do with joining a club. Well, thanks, Liz. And I'll try to be brief. It's, a, it's that part of the journey, the, the, the journey through Italy that led to my understanding of social capital and led to all the rest of the we're going to talk this evening. That Italian journey took itself took 20 years. So um, a long time ago, when I was just a kid, more than 50 years ago, uh, my family and I were in Italy for some other reasons. 
Um, and unexpectedly, the Italians laid the groundwork for a um, really quite interesting study. They didn't know it. They were not, this was not their purpose, but they created across Italy, all across Italy, from the heel of the boot up to the, up to the northern part of Italy, a whole set of new regional governments. They were all basically very strong in principle. On paper, they all looked identical. But they were being set in um, different regions that had different local local conditions. It's a little bit like if you were a botanist and you want to study plant growth, you put, you know, genetically identical seeds in different soils and water them differently, and you see how they grow, and that helps you to understand what could be the ingredient in the soil that, that accounts for their their success as plants. And we basically did that over 20 years, followed the development of these these new regional governments, and some of them turned out to be great successes, and others, you know, withered and collapsed. And that was what we were trying to explain there. At this point, I'm still just a scientist, and I'm doing this crazy little study of Italian regional government. And we, um, so now we had, you know, we now knew there was something about some of these soils that was good for growth or bad for growth of, of these new democratic institutions. In other words, there was, we, we knew that there was something in the soil that was making the same institution work democratically some places and not other places. And so we searched, that was also a whodunit. We searched a lot of different, we researched the idea, well, could it be this, could it be that, could it be education, could it be wealth? We didn't guess actually what turned out to be the most important ingredient in the soil, which was choral societies, that is singing groups or and football clubs and all sorts of civic groups that connected people. Bottom line, we discovered that social networks, which we had was not on our list of suspects at the beginning, social networks seemed to do something. It seemed to make it make democracy work. And that was the title of that book. Um, and then this is going on out of the next part of the story. So, you know, after 25 years, I came back to Italy. Of course, I've been in America during much of that period, but I came back to America. And and now, not as a citizen, I was worried about something that really concerned me, that is American democracy. Um, and even though this was, as Pete said, a time of great triumphalism in America about how everything was going well and we defeated the, you know, the our, our enemies, the Russians and so on. Um, I thought, and I discovered that most Americans thought that things were not going so well. When I, when I was a kid and growing up in a small town in Ohio in the 1950s, if you ask people, do you trust the government to do what's right? 75% of Americans, 75% of Americans said, yes, they did trust the government to do what's right. Last week, that same question, exactly the same question, 17% of Americans. So there's been this huge collapse in at least in how Americans felt about democracy. And I thought actually probably a collapse in American democracy. And so I then suddenly wondered, well, could I, the stuff that I've been studying in Italy, namely these groups and connections and so on, could that have anything to do with what I was worried about as a citizen, which was America, American democracy seemed to be falling apart. That's the background uh, to, this, to the story that Pete and Rebecca Davis then tell in the movie. And so that research then became the the famed iconic book bowling alone and it's now been what was the publication date 2000 so it's been almost 25 years at the time a lot of people thought i was wrong 
Now it turns out most people think I was right, because, of course, we know that America has gone to hell in a handbasket, even more than, I, than it was when I started that. So I'm not saying I told you so, but I did. But <laughs> you did. And actually, that was one of my main <laughs> reactions, just re, re reading it, knowing what we know now. It's, it's just almost incomprehensible. And I, I wonder sort of what it feels like to be on this side of that data that you shared with all of us and to see it getting worse and worse. Well, it feels terrible. I mean, in one sense, this it's this is a story that is a story of my work. It's obviously it's a matter of satisfaction for me that it's the book, the, the work has been well received. But in some sense, I failed. Way back in the beginning, when I was starting out, I was hoping to dedicate my life to making a better, to use social science to make America a better place. I, that sounds really silly, but that actually was my motivation at the beginning. And here I am now, 50 years later, you know, in my early 80s, and I spent my whole life trying to make America move in the right direction, but it hasn't. And therefore, in some sense, despite my best efforts, you know, things have gone oh, you've, Yeah, you've, you've moved the needle. I've got, I've got, I'm going to introduce you to some people, tell you about some people later on so that you know that that's in fact true. Somebody stopped me the other day you know, because this is this is hard work. Someone stopped me and said, I just wanted you to know that sometimes you may not see it, but the things you're doing, uh, you know, and and of course, of course, we see what you've done. Shaylin, um, bringing you in. uh, So talking both of us are all of us talking about um, the social capital thing, like say a few more words about what it is and what it looks like and why it's so important. Yeah, so social capital is basically sort of a fancy way of saying that social networks have value. That, you know, we think of things like human capital, which is, you know, training people to have certain skills that definitely has value, right? Or physical capital, owning a building or owning a piece of equipment or something like that, that has clear value. And so the idea of social capital is that social networks themselves are something that bring value. They bring economic value. They bring value for um, measures of health and well-being, but they also bring value specifically for the health and well-being of democratic systems, right? And that's really the part that we are focused on, although there are lots and lots of other, I mean, of course, Bob's popularization of the the, the idea of social capital um, spawned whole fields of research about the relationship between networks and health, the relationship between networks and the economy, but really, um, as Bob mentioned, you know, his passion is the relationship between social networks and democracy. And so as he found in Italy, um, those areas that had higher measures of social capital, more dense networks of people knowing each other, that had this strange sort of outcome that democratic institutions functioned better. And and we see that as well um, in America. And that's really what the upswing, you know, uh, a book that that I'm sure you'll get into a little bit later um, argues is that there's this intertwining sort of relationship between social capital and the health of lots of other things going on in our society at the same time. So it's not just knowing your neighbor is fun or that it's good for you personally. It's good for a whole lot of other things that you may not be thinking about when you go down the street and learn your neighbor's first name. So say a word about generalized reciprocity, a concept that you talk about in the book. 
Yeah. So reciprocity, um, people are familiar with this concept of, can I trust people, right? If I am a generous person, can I trust that a person, you know, other people are going to be generous back to me. If I am honest, can I trust that other people are going to be honest, right? And sometimes we think about that as like a one-on-one sort of relationship. We have reciprocity relationships with a neighbor. If I loan you a cup of sugar, I can trust that when I need a cup of sugar, you're going to loan it to me. Um, and, and we can sense, I think, in a personal sense, whether we have that sense of trust and reciprocity with people in one-on-one. But generalized reciprocity is the idea that if I give a cup of sugar to this neighbor, then at some point down the line, because I live in a neighborhood that generally has a lot of trust, I can trust that someone will give something to me. It may not be that same person. It might be somebody else. It might be somebody that I don't know. It might be two, two months from now. But overall, I have a general sense that if I give into the community, the community will give back. If I am honest in my dealings in the community, that other people will be honest as well. And so there's a way in which um, dense networks of social capital create this sense that we can all trust each other, that we can all rely on one each other, on each other, not necessarily in that I know you because you know me, but in this general sense that this is a place where we can trust one another. And that generalized reciprocity, as you can imagine, is really, really important for the the, the healthy functioning of um, government institutions, for the healthy functioning of, of economies, all sorts of things. And so um, it's just another way of sort of articulating the, the value that social capital brings to a society. In fact, um, you might think that sounds almost too good to be true, right? It is this magic of this everybody trusting everybody and it keeps going on and where would that ever be in reality but the the point of the book bowling alone was to say well it was once true here it's not a fiction of you know it's not some uh, long ago way distant kind of ideal it was true right here in river city and and that's what the all oh, there's there's you know tons of graphs and charts in the book bowling alone and they all show and subsequent research has confirmed this, that in the middle 60s, America was that kind of place. People try, I don't say, I've got to be careful. I'm not saying America was a perfect place in the middle 60s, but on the whole, you didn't lock your door. When I say to my grandchildren that I grew up in a town in which people did not lock their doors, they think I must be nuts. But, <laughs> right? And, and that's the, the only advantage that an old guy like me has is I actually remember when we had a different kind of America. And that I don't I'm not sure quite how to fix it. That's because I'm so old, but I am old enough to know it doesn't have to be this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so I've actually got a, a an audience question that's kind of the $10 million question for Robert Putnam. Who or what do you feel killed social capital in America? Um I that's a really great question. Um, and it's a really hard question. And indeed, over the years, my answer to that has changed. Um, and so let me say a little bit about what it was. My, my answer to that question was when I finished Bowling Alone, the book Bowling Alone, I even had a chart in there, which I said 25% is this and 20% is that and so on. Um, and I'll tell you what that was. But, you know, I'm now another 25 years has gone on. And with Shailen's help, we look back at this whole period. and. I have a somewhat different answer. And maybe I'll say what the answer was back in the day when we, back in the day, meaning around 2000, when the book was published and Shailene can jump in and say how that's, how we, we have concluded that's changed. 
Okay, so part of the story, a tiny part of the story, but I get a lot of flack for saying this, was women moving out of the home and into the uh, into the workplace. And I want to make clear, I totally, wholeheartedly support that. My daughter is a full-time working woman. I'm extremely proud of her. I'd be really upset if she weren't working. Um, but they're on 24 hours in the day. And and in the old days, before, you know, in the 50s, and, and actually going back way back in history, women sort of specialized in social capital, if I can put it that, that way. That's just jargon for saying they went to the PTA and they, you know, worried about the neighbors and they had they held dinner parties and picnics and so on. Those are all ways of connecting. And, you know, when they, when they began to move into the paid labor force, that that just inevitably reduced the amount of social capital building that was going on in America. That, I have to say, um, I want to emphasize, I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And I also want to emphasize that's a tiny part of it. That may be 5 or 10% of the total problem. And also and, there's just so many hours in the day, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Yeah, yeah. But it's not the main story anyhow. Uh, the small story is suburbanization is people moved out to the suburbs. They were spending more time in little, little boxes, boxes, namely cars, and had just had less time to know with their, deal with their neighbors than their parents had been when they were living back in the city. And so that had an effect. And again, not, not a very big effect. And there are a lot of things that had no effect, as far as we could tell. Um, uh, one of the ones that I emphasized a lot in in, in the book, Bowling Alone, was television and screen time. And the timing fit, that is, television came like a lightning bolt into Americans. Nobody around ever now knows this, but in 1950, almost nobody in America had a television set. And in 1960, almost everybody had a television set. It was just like, boom, at lightning bolt. And, that, and television turned out to distract people from going to bowling leagues or doing other things outside the home. It is not identical to the then much later uh, introduction of, of um, you know, the Internet and social media and so on. But it had a similar kind of effect. People spent more time, you know, inside or or whether they're inside or outside, looking at a looking at a screen and less time looking at other real people. And that so that was I thought that was um, at the time I wrote Voting Alone. I thought that was probably 50, 25 percent of the total problem. And I still think it was important, but I don't think it was just literally television. I think it was a screen. And now we can see that screens, even if they're not television, they, if they're, you know, even that screen has a, a negative effect on, on my All connection. All screens except the screen we're on now. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's, we can come back to that. That's a, <laughs> the, the, the um, nuanced story, right? <laughs> right. But it's also that the, the pandemic, which is, of course, where this, this Zooming came from, it has a lot of we can learn a lot from the from the period of the pandemic, but I I don't want to get distracted from saying one of the big things I said at the time was it's something generationally because younger people I said remember this is writing about the sixties so younger people meant then the baby boomers were now old but they were and they were systematically less connected than their parents were and their parents were less connected than their parents were. So it looked as if, you know, people had been connected for quite a while, but then somehow something happened in the 60s, I thought then, that led to subsequent generations being less connected. Well, that turns out to be really true, but of course that doesn't tell you what it was. 
it doesn't answer the question. It just tells you, you know, it's like playing Clue, and it was, and you, you think, well, it was done with a lead pipe by Colonel Mustard in the library. Well, it was in the library for sure, but it didn't tell you why or who. And I, I love the metaphor that you used in the upswing for it was like a flock of birds. You can't tell which bird turned first, but right. that but that you could see all the birds turning together. That's right. And let me say exactly for the audience that hasn't read the book, what that birds turning together means. And then I'll, I want to turn it back to Shailene because Shailene and I, in the in this most recent book, which is of course twenty five years later, asking the same kind of question, but about but about more than just social capital. We're asking it about equality and social justice and and um, uh, culture and economics and so on. And and that she she can step in to say what the detective story looks like in that now the, now that we're much further away, we can sort of look back and see how it happened. Um, so let me uh, let me go ahead and throw the book up. Can you see it? Um, the upswing, how America came together a century ago, and how how we can do it again. And I think it's worth saying, Liz and Bob, just that you know, uh, the upswing really is Bob's continuation of the detective story, right? Like this this gnawing question in him as a researcher to really try to understand what was going on, and in order to do that. It didn't it didn't mean drilling down further into the social capital data. What it meant was zooming out and, and taking in more than just the question of social capital and also zooming out to take in a larger time frame than than just the second half of the 20th century. Um, and that that was the new take on the question that Bob brought to the research behind the upswing. Go, go ahead, Shannon. That's just finish off the, the, the point about the kinds of lessons we drew. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of fun. It might be kind of fun to just to just share with them, you know, how the upswing really came about. Which is, you know, I um, I've been a student of Bob actually since 2000 when Bowling Alone came out. So I was probably the first class of students that were taught the research behind Bowling Alone, and so I've been fascinated by this basically my entire adult life, and have worked with Bob in various different capacities for lots and lots of years, and. At one point, my husband and I went to dinner over at Bob and Rosemary's home um, up in New Hampshire, where which is where Bob has a home where he does all of his writing. And and, you know, it'd been a while and we were catching up and, and you know, um, this was after I think this was after you had written our kids several years after you'd written our kids. Yeah. And you were saying, you know, I've been tinkering with these data sets and I've been noticing something interesting. And, and I thought to myself, you know, only Bob Putnam spends his spare time in a beautiful house in New Hampshire tinkering with obscure data sets. Right. And and he goes on to explain, you know, that he'd kind of dis discovered this phenomenon that that, you know, with bowling alone, what we're looking at is is sort of a falling off the cliff. We're looking at mid-century America, mid-20th century, and then everything from a social capital perspective just sort of, you know, falls off the cliff and all those measures go down. But he started to zoom out and ask the question, what was going on before we fell off the cliff? And what he found with social capital was actually that during the first two thirds of the 20th century, social capital actually was steadily increasing. And so what he discovered was what we've come to call an inverted U-curve where the social capital story for the entire 20th century looks like it was going up, 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 up. And then there's this inflection point in the 1960s and then it goes down, 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 down. And so he started to ask the question, is this going on in other domains of American life? And ultimately, um, 
it, it, what Bob discovered was that when we looked at economic equality versus inequality, same thing, moving in a much more equal direction for the first two thirds of the 20th century, and then come the 60s, then it all falls off the cliff. And then looking at the question of um, politics, political polarization specifically, um, when were we cooperating versus you know fighting in the public square? Turns out that over the course of the 20th century, first two thirds of the century, everything is getting more and more and more cooperative in the public square. And then 1960s, we turn and fall off the cliff. And the same thing turns out to be true for culture. And Bob, during this period, you know, discovered some really interesting ways of measuring culture, which he can get into if you want to discuss that. But we look at the culture and when we talk about culture, there's lots of things that you could include in that. But specifically, we're talking about a culture of solidarity the feeling that we're all in this together versus a culture of kind of individualism that, you know, it's every man for himself, which of those two concepts were more salient and when over the course of the 20th century. And guess what? It's an inverted U curve. First two thirds of the 20th century, up, 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 everything's moving in a more solidaristic direction. We're feeling like we're in this together. We're building this sense of a collective we, and then in the 1960s, it flips and falls off the cliff. And so then when you layer all of those graphs together, politics, economics, social capital or society and culture, there's this breathtaking phenomenon that they all track the exact same trajectory. And I am not a data scientist. Um, I am a storyteller, but even I can tell how rare it is for that many data points to track that closely over such a long period of time. It's, it almost never happens. And so the realization is there's something going on here. And when I was approached by Bob's agent to come in and help Bob tell this story, he framed it as we've got five graphs in search of a story. That was what it was. And, and so it became this process for Bob and I to really look at what was happening here and craft a story to try and help America understand what it had gone through, what we've gone through over the last 125 years and what, what can we learn from that today? So we have an audience question that's um, interesting. How has the social contract changed since Bowling Alone was published? And then also I'm going to throw in another um, question sort of related to what you were talking about, Shaylin, which is, uh, um, do you have any comments on sort of how the pandemic affected this? So I start off on that? Um, I'll start off on the last. Um, we're looking at these changes, which Shayla has described very well, which go up, 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 and then down, down, down over decades, decades. And um, the pandemic comes in at the very end of that, right? Only in the last, you know, couple of years of this 125 years does the pandemic come in. So basically the pandemic, I can, if I can put it this way, the pandemic makes it worse, but had nothing to do with the, the basic, you know, uh, that's like trying to figure out what happened in, you know, look at the weather in, you know, in mid-March or whatever, and you try to figure out, well, what happened? You can't. You can only, as if you look at the whole year, can you see why it was cold and, and that it was cold and so on. Um, the first of those two questions from the outs, from the audience was, remind me again, the first question. Has the social contract changed since Bowling oh. was written? No, but it changed what bowling, what the, the, the same story that, that Shannon just described was you can see very clearly there was a change, not overnight, but the change in that you can see when it begins. 
And it begins in the middle 60s. And, um, and that, of course, raises the question, well, why did it change? That's a different question. But there's no doubt that coming into the 60s, America, Americans, almost all Americans, had this idea that we owe things to one another. I'll do this for you. I'm not expecting something back right now. It's generalized reciprocity. Down the road, you'll do something for me. We all we're all in this together, and therefore we should all have a decent kind of level of income. Indeed, people don't know, but it's true that in the 19, mid 1960s, America was the most equal country in the world. We were more equal than Sweden, for goodness sakes. We were. I mean, that's we were, really hard to believe, isn't it? That's amazing. We were a capitalist country, but in terms of the outcome, we were kind of like a socialist country. And it was America. It was a capitalist country, but we somehow contrived to work things out such that everybody was in a, and now we've gone from being in, this is really astonishing. We've gone from being in 1964, 65, the most equal country in the world to being now just about the least equal country in the world. That's a huge, these are not tiny little things that have only, only of interest to social scientists. For goodness sakes, the whole, it's what you, what the question you ask about, the whole basis of our understandings and cooperation with each other. And that's true in politics too. We were, Back in the in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, there was not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. And there was a huge, huge ton of collaboration across party lines. We're seeing that enacted, that problem enacted right now. I mean, these days, if you just look up the newspaper, because Biden, he was not talking during the 60s, but he still was active. He became active in politics when there was a lot of give and take across party lines. And he still can't quite figure out what we're we doing when not the Republicans can't even agree with each other. I mean, this, this, we're kind of reached the kind of the madness of extreme polar, hard to imagine a more polarized society. So I'm back to the question, did the social crowd track change? You bet it did. And in every respect, in what we owe to one another, how we deal with one another, to what, how, you know, to what extent we're equal with one another, to what extent we focus on, you know, we're connected with one another. Big, big deal. And can I just add a little bit to that as well, which is like when you read Bowling Alone, there's kind of this sense like, well, we were all we always used to be connected to one another. And then all of a sudden things change. And what the upswing really adds to that is um, that's not true. Right. That there was a time in American history that actually looks pretty much identical to the one that we're living in today. Right. And that turns out to be a period in history that historians call the Gilded Age, which is the late 1800s, 1890s, 1880s. That period in American history was, if we're talking about an inverted U-curve and we're living here, well, the Gilded Age was here, right? And so we had this huge change of moving out of the Gilded Age, a highly polarized, highly unequal, highly disconnected, highly narcissistic time in our history. And then we have this 70 years where we slowly climb our way to a, a sense that we're all in this together. Right. And so that was a hard one change that happened over 70 plus years that then flipped. So it's not an accurate story to say that we've just that we've just lost something that we always used to have in terms of equality or in terms of connectedness or in terms of, you know, um, generosity towards one another. It actually turns out that we've been here right here. The moment that we're living in now, we've been here once before. And the reason that we titled the book The Upswing is because our focus is actually not on the whodunit of what happened from 1960 to today. Our feeling is if ever there were a historical moment whose lessons we need to learn, 
It's not some supposed supposed golden age that happened in the 1960s. It is the moment that looked the most like the one we're living in. And that moment is the Gilded Age. And, And just like today, to an astonishing extent, just like today, there were all these social commentators and all of these observers decrying the end of democracy, tyranny, oligarchy, the American experiment has failed, you know, the sky is falling. The same things that we hear today were being said then. But what's so fascinating is that none of those doomsday prophecies turned out to be true. On the contrary, America entered a multifaceted, multi-decade upswing that happened over the course of 70 years and completely changed the country. And so our question is, how do we recreate another upswing? Let's stop preoccupying ourselves with how we've lost all of our social capital or how we became polarized. And let's ask the question, how did we fix these problems once before? Because maybe we could do it again. I agree with everything that Shailen said, and I think she or I, the only thing we would add is it was not predestined. It was not if you just wait around, it got better. It didn't. It wouldn't have gotten better. It was because people decided to make it better. So the the the, the lesson of that now is it's not going to get better unless we make it better. It's up to us. It's not predetermined. Does that make sense? That's, I think, an important thing to add. And it's also not, um, we talked in the pre-call about, you know, some people would say that it's just about waiting around because surely it's gotten bad enough and now it's going to get better. We can just sit and like watch TV and wait for the upswing to happen. Not going to happen. Well, and going back to that question that came up earlier about the pandemic, right? This book was published. Well, the manuscript was entirely finished before the pandemic hit. And so when we were doing our very first book tour events, every question was about the pandemic. And the main question that we used to get was, well, this is it, right? We've hit rock bottom. It's only up from here. This has to be the end of the downturn. And do, and <laughs> two years later, would we say that that's accurate? No, right? Because we've continued to choose to live in a narcissistic, self-focused, disconnected, polarized, disagreeable culture. We have perpetuated that. We've allowed the pandemic, a crisis, to become something that made the problem worse rather than a soul-searching moment when we choose to make it better. And so, yeah, I think the pandemic is the ultimate evidence that nothing's inevitable as far as this turning around. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember now at the beginning thinking maybe this is this is something we can fight together. And it, right. it, it, it didn't turn out that way. Um, well, but, so now, but you realize like, why was it that we couldn't fight it together? Well, because we were at a historic low in terms of our ability to do things together at all. You don't magically turn that around. And that's the other lesson of the upswing, right? Is that it took 70 years to get from rock bottom back to that place where we looked like Sweden and everything was equal. With our really short attention spans today, we want that to happen in two years. And I don't think that that's realistic to think that that's what's going to happen. I think it's realistic that we can flip the direction that our country is moving in in a couple of years, but it's going to take a while to build our the health of our democracy and the health of our sense of we, uh, just like it did last time. And, and to Bob's point, it's not going to happen without us doing something, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. want to add something about the connection between the the pandemic and um, and social capital or this upswing, downswing sort of stuff. People often thought, well, as not many people, but I mean, the people paying attention thought, well, is how about the, the COVID? Is COVID going to fix the upswing? fix our problems with social capital. That's what was just said. You know, this, maybe you thought that. So far from, is that from being true that social capital, it turns out, was an important factor 
in determining what happened during during COVID. And what I mean by this is places in America and places around the world that had high social capital, where you're worried about other people, were the places where fewer people died. Having having social capital was like this remarkable. It's not a vaccine, but sort of it's like a sociological vaccine that if you were living among people who cared about one another, well, they didn't spread the vaccine to one another. And I'm not, I don't want to get into the whole issue about should we take the vaccine? Should we and should we wear masks and so on? But wearing a mask is an illustration, not just that you're trying to protect yourself, but that you're worried about you're giving it to other people. And that happened where there was high social capital. So one way of looking at this is America, in other periods, we would have had high social capital and we would have. That would have helped us lick, lick the, the COVID crisis. But sadly, it caught us at our most vulnerable moment. It caught us just when our defenses were down, our sociological defenses were down. Does that make sense? Make, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, makes a lot of sense. So there's a basic concept in, um, in the upswing that I wanted to make sure that everybody heard. And that is, I think we should all know it, the I-we-I curve. Can you say something about that? Sure. So, so, so I spoke about those four different lenses that the upswing looks at our society through. The first is politics, society, which is the social capital lens, um, economics, and culture. And as we saw, all four of those tracked the same trajectory. And so through high-level statistical methods, those four curves are actually so similar so statistically correlated that you can actually combine them into a single curve. That's the curve on the book. And that's the curve on the book. And, and we, we needed a sort of a name for that curve to help people understand what it represented. And what we came to was this I, we, I curve, because essentially what we're describing is a society in which we were extremely I focused, focused on the self in our economics, in our politics, in our society and in our culture. And then slowly we moved in a, in a more direction of we, and then we moved back in the direction of I. And so we also came to call the sort of 20th century as America's I, we, I century. This period in our history where we had these multiple sea changes in the focus of our culture, really. And, and that actually turns out to be, when we ask the question, sort of what's the leading variable among all these different variables that kind of was the thing that moved in the right direction first? Well, the clear answer to that turns out to be culture. That um, And that's actually a real surprise. I think Bob, as a social scientist, would say it was a surprise to him that culture was the leader. Often social science will tell us that economics is always the leader. Economic, we're, we're primarily economic animals, right? We make decisions based on incentives and that's kind of generally how things work. Well, what this shows is actually that culture shifted before our economics moved in a more egalitarian direction. Culture shifted toward we before we started to fix the hyperpolarization of our public square. And so that's a really interesting observation because then it, it what it says is we can debate all day long how we're going to create an economic system that's more fair. But maybe if the lessons of history are correct, we need to get underneath those questions of policy, underneath those questions of politics, underneath those questions of economics and ask ourselves, what are we doing here? What is it that we're doing as a society? What is the cultural lens through which we see the project that we are all engaged in? Because if it is a dog eat dog, every man for himself, you know, only the strong will survive and the devil take the hindmost. Well, 
it's kind of hopeless to get our get our, our economics fixed and get our politics fixed if culturally that's what we believe versus if we believe that we're all in this together and that the purpose of our society is to take care of the most vulnerable well that's a totally different calculus that then manifests in how we arrange our economic systems and how we behave in the public square and so one of the biggest lessons of the upswing is to say hey wait a minute we need to get serious about having conversations about the culture that we have created in our country. Um, one other thing that is implicit in what Shailen has said, I agree with it, of course, I agree with everything Shailen said, but another thing that's implicit is this has happened once before. The reason we're able to say that this, this is, it's not just a hypothesis, we can look at the data, we can look at the history, the narrative history of the late 19th century, and we can see, we can, we can, I can, I will just, if you'll forgive me a little bit, I want to say a little bit about what that looked like, that turning point looked like then. And what it looked like was, it happened initially, actually, in evangelical Protestant churches. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm not even Christian, much less a Protestant, much less an evangelical Protestant. But I do want to say this, is, and then later on spread to the whole society. But what was happening among, they, they were called, it was called the social gospel. And the social gospel was this, a bunch of, of um, not a bunch, but a number of Protestant theologians who were really upset about the fact that at that time, everybody was thinking about my salvation. I'm worried about my salvation. I'm going to make sure I get into heaven and the devil take everybody else. And these theologians said, read the darn Sermon on the Mount. That's the word of Christ. That's God's word. And what he's, he doesn't say, oh, rich people are going to get in heaven pretty easily. It's quite the contrary. He said it's harder for rich men to get into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. He didn't say, screw the poor. He said, our job is to be with the poor, and so on. I mean, I'm not a Christian theologian, so I can't quote, though I could almost could quote the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. But that's, that's what, now I'm not trying to say it has to be religious, but I'm, that's what it looked like. And that's what we, and then it spread, I need to say quickly, it spread to, not just evangelical Protestants, but other Protestant groups and the Catholics. And there was a very similar movement in the Catholic Church at the end of the 19th century, not long ago. He said, quickly dropping a name, I was talking with Pope Francis and um, and he's- A name I would drop too. <laughs> he's, he's talking about making a similar kind of change now in the theology of the church. And, and, and it was true for, it was a similar movement among Jews. And then it became true across the culture. So I'm not saying this has to be about religion, but it does have to be a moral reawakening. And that's not something that's impossible. We've done it before in this country. That's the main point of our book. These are not impossible things to do. We can do it, but we've got to know what comes first and what comes first is worrying about one another. I, I love the way you all talk about um, the idea that um, that this isn't that everything's not about politics. We have a tendency to sort of think that if feel really helpless because we can't control what we're seeing happening in politics. And like, and you, if you look back at the upswing, for example, I think a lot of people just think that one one of the main reasons the upswing happened is World War II, and and, and the data doesn't support that. So at all, at all. And so it was culture change that happened first. Yes. 
and far earlier than World War II as well, right? I mean, that's the other thing is that that even some of the best historians of the 20th century tend to tell this sort of cartoon history of the 20th century that that really the turning point was when we all had to come together to fight this world war. And that is quite clearly not true because all these curves that we're describing started decades before we entered World War II, right? They moved in the right direction for decades before the 1940s and for decades after. And so that causally just can't be the story. Um, It's a nice story. And the thing about that story that is so attractive is that it's an external thing. Something happened to us that changed us. And I really think that that's what people were going for in thinking about the pandemic that way. It was something that happened to us that was going to change us, right? But what that's doing is actually surrendering our agency. And 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 it's a, it's a really nice thing to do because it means I don't really have to think that hard about myself. Society changes, you know, because of the waves of history and I'm just drifting on those waves, right? Um, it's a nice, it's a comfortable thing to do because it means that I don't have to do any really hard work within myself. But, you know, one of the really interesting realizations that comes out of all of this data you know, scores and scores and scores of data sets that Bob analyzed to come up with these curves, what comes out of that is change actually starts right here inside the human heart. I mean, it's interesting how we have to go through all this scientific, you know, um, stuff to prove to ourselves something that actually I think we all innately know, right, that I have to be the change. You know, that quote is from Gandhi, of course, is overused and, and often, I think, misunderstood, but it really does begin with how we choose to show up in our relationships toward one another. That is where it starts. And that is something that we have a hundred percent control over. So I want to go ahead and turn to, to, to part two, which and, and really focus on what is it that we do? Um, and sort of on the cusp of that turn, I do want to um, use another example from the book about how another story I think we tell ourselves is that, is that it was the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act that moved the needle in America on race. But but the upswing tells a different story there, too. And it's a story where there was agency. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the in terms of black communities right. on their own putting their shoulder to the wheel. Shane and why don't I do the pictures? Go ahead. Yeah. With a thousand words. And Absolutely. Then, and then we can tell what the story means. So Great. we've got a pair of charts. I think maybe, Liz, you have them there. If you'll put up the first one, I can quickly explain what it yes. means. There we go. Okay. This is not true, but it's what many white people think is true. And the horizontal axis is this same horizontal axis we've been talking all the time. It starts over at the left at, in 1900 and over the right at 2020. It actually keeps going after 2020. Um, and the vertical axis, in this case, the vertical axis is a measure of black-white equality. I repeat, this is not actual data, but it's what most, pe- most white people think was the case. Most white people think that um, everything was awful for black people down at the bottom, there was the ratio of black. And I should say, what do we have? What's going on behind this? Well, what's going on behind this would be things like ratio of black income to white income, ratio of black life or life expectancy to uh, black life expectancy, ratio of you know black um, infant mortality to white infant mortality, ratio of black 
income or property to white income or property. That's that's what's going on behind this. And what this graph shows is it looks like uh, people think things was were awful, evil, terrible in that domain until like a lightning bolt, here comes Martin Luther King, and then after that, everything gets fixed. In every respect, that graph is wrong. And so if you now turn to the next slide, we'll look at what actually was the fact. And again, up here is an average, it's a summary measure that looks at life expectancy, high school and college graduation, earnings per worker, and home ownership, because home ownership is the, is the biggest component of, of wealth. And again, low is low here means blacks are really very unequal. Up at the top is what which we've never reached is when blacks and whites are actually in materially equal positions. They have the same life expectancy on average, the same, you know, college education, high school education, home ownership, income, and so on. We never get there. But what's worth looking at is the trend. Most of the gain, most of the improvements in black uh, conditions of life compared to white conditions of life occur before the civil rights revolution. You can see it goes there from um, from about 0.35 till about 0.7. I mean, it's a huge increase. It never reaches equal. It never reaches equal. But we were going in that direction. And then comes the the uh, the civil rights revolution, and that stops the progress. I don't mean it was causally caused it to stop. Maybe it did. But the main point is everything about the story that most people, most white people think is true is exactly wrong. It's not the case that we were not making progress before the civil rights, uh, civil rights revolution. And if this is the case, we were, we stopped making progress after the civil rights revolution. So that's the big fact. And Shailen, um, I want to make sure we had the facts straight. Shailen has yeah. a story that makes sense of that. Go ahead, Shailen. Well, I do just want to clarify that that there there were some ways. So that first graph that you showed, Liz, we often refer to that as sort of the hockey stick image of, of racial equality over the 20th century. And I do want to just clarify that there are many ways in which that hockey stick story is true, particularly when we talk about the longstanding lack of Black political representation, the thriving of white supremacy in mainstream culture and media. Um, the long delayed entry of black Americans into professional schools and jobs. Um, residential segregation is another example. And so those are those exclusionary um, measures actually do follow that trajectory where there was exclusion. And then because of the changes in legislation, all of and, and because of desegregation and other things, those things dramatically changed. Um, and so what Bob is saying is that that when we're looking specifically at material equality, health, education, economics, even voting um, registration and participation, that is what we're seeing in that second graph. And that is a very surprising story, right? That actually most of the infant mortality and life expectancy was improved. Most of the high school and college completion and elementary enrollment was improved. Most of the income and home ownership was improved before the civil rights revolution. And, and there's a whole story for why. I know we're running a little bit short on time, but the main reason why is because of um, the Great Migration. Basically, white, or excuse me, Black Americans 
moved out of the hostile South and into the slightly more hospitable West and North. And there essentially developed a society alongside white society. So again, we still had that exclusionary piece, but in terms of their ability to get ahead economically, in terms of their educational status, huge improvements, not really due to anything that white Americans did, due really to black Americans standing up and claiming their place within this growing American we, right? So that's that story there. But I think can I just say that's the story that Michelle Obama tells in her autobiography. Her grandfather moved up. Her father got a job, a working class job. He was able to help her. And then she went off to college. And now, not, of course, not every black person ended up. That doesn't always end up in the, in the Oval Office. But that that is what we're talking about. That life history of, of many, many blacks. Go ahead, and, and that's a that's a that's a story that not not enough white Americans know, frankly. But that's actually not the most interesting part of the graph that you shared. The most interesting part of the graph is actually what happens after the civil rights movement when everything levels off. So you would think that if we were already moving in this upward trajectory toward equality, then once the laws changed and the civil rights movement comes on the scene, that it should have just gone up and up and up and up and we should have hit equality, right? And so what's fascinating is to ask ourselves, what, why did it level off? And we call that in the book, the foot off the gas period, where America suddenly takes the foot off the gas on moving toward racial equality. And it turns out that that moment when we take our foot off the gas and moving toward equality corresponds exactly when to the moment when America moves in this negative direction away from solidarity generally and toward hyper-individualism. And so we can't say whether one caused the other, but what we do know is those two moments are highly correlated. The moment in which um, America moves away from we and toward I turns out to be the moment that we also move away from racial equalization. And a huge part of that story is white backlash to the civil rights movement. When you look at the data, and it's no surprise that we passed civil rights legislation during this peak of American we, right? The moment in which we were finally expanding this sense of we, we felt like we were all in it together according to the hard measures that we've presented, right? That was what was happening in America. No surprise that that was the moment that we successfully passed the civil rights legislation and the majority of Americans were in favor of passing that legislation. However, months after the passage of key civil rights legislation, you can see in the survey data that white Americans begin to say, "Mm, that was nice in theory, but not if you actually have to do something about it, right? And not in my backyard. And that's when we start to see that backlash of saying, this was a lovely idea right up until I actually had to share the pie. And so whether white backlash was caused by this cultural move toward I or whether the cultural move toward I was caused by the white backlash, we don't know. But those are two phenomena that are highly correlated. And so the result has been the sort of stagnation of the hopes and dreams of the civil rights movement alongside all of these other falling offs that we have seen in the data. And that, I think, is really, you know, the story of the Black Lives Matter movement. It wasn't just about police violence. It was about police violence on the face of it. But underneath it was all of this angst and anger of people saying things in our communities have not changed a bit since 1968. What happened to all the promises of the civil rights movement, all of that pent up anger and frustration? And that really is correlated with this moment in which we came unraveled as a society in all these other ways. So the first upswing happened bottom up first. Yes. Say more about that. You see you see the solution is located 
in hometowns between people who feel very powerless. And maybe while you say something about that, can you say something about what that disconnection is? Why why are we maybe more powerful than we think, and but we don't feel it? Well, first of all, let's, I mean, either of us could do this, Shana, and I'll, I'll jump in uh, about that. Um, it was, there were one, this is one of the most important lessons from that period. It was bottom up, it was not top down. Um, and that meant a number of things. It meant that it began with people in their own hometowns trying to fix problems that they saw and they stumbled on some solutions that turned out to be fabulous. And the role of the national progressives like Theodore Roosevelt was not, he didn't invent the stuff. He was a very firm advocate, but he was, he was selling ideas that had been tried out in the previous 10 or 20 years. And there are many examples of that. The one I want to talk about, because I think it's sort of surprising is the high school. Public high school was invented for the first time in world history in 1910. I'm exaggerating a little bit, maybe it was 1911 or 1909 or whatever. I choose my words carefully. There had been high schools, secondary schools, but they were not open to everybody. They were open only if you paid. But the high school, the public high school, what it said is anybody, any kid in town, just because they're a kid in this town, no matter what their parents do, or they get four years of free secondary education. A massive breakthrough. That change alone accounts for most of American economic growth throughout the entire 20th century. Because for the whole 20th century, we had an incredibly well-educated, compared to everybody else, incredibly well-educated working and upper and and working class and and lower middle class. And so where did it, so it's a it's an amazing, very powerful invention. Where did it come from? It did not come from Harvard. It did not come from Washington or New York or or you know, any of the major universities, it came from small towns in the middle of America, in Iowa and Kansas and you know, and South Dakota and so on. So there were people in these towns, I'm sorry I'm going on a little long, but I'm trying to say, this is what it will look like if we do this again. It was not intellectuals like me, or it was not you know, public figures. They came on along later, they were important parts of it, but the ideas came from small towns in the middle of America, and what it looked like was people said, well, I don't know what's happening nationally. I know our kids are going to have to compete in a different world. They're going to have to know more. And therefore, I think we should pay more in taxes. We should pay more in taxes here in River City. And including rich folks in River City who'd already sent their kids to private school. And they were now off in Chicago making money. At that time, those people in those towns felt close enough to one another that they said, yeah, tax me too, so that other people's kids can go to college, uh, could go to high school. And it was it was fabulous. Okay, way back, I want to come out of that. That was happening in local communities because there were enough people in local towns that thought that they had an obligation to other people. That's what it's going to look like this, this next time, if we can do it. It'll be people, God knows where, but they're going to be someplace they're not in the usual, they're not the usual suspects. It's going to be people who are working across party lines to fix real problems in their community, and they're going to stumble on something that is magnificent. And uh, we've got a question about sort of what infrastructure still exists out there that can help us to turn this around. And in some ways, that what you just said is kind of the answer to that, right? Which is the infrastructure that's still left is the infrastructure that's outside our door. 
it, and 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 something that we are not we are not really interacting with it. Say a word about so you know we we've stopped going to public meetings. We've stopped being with each other, and but it's been unequal in the distribution, right? Um, the people who stopped showing up were the people who were more centrist and moderate in their views. Exactly right. That right? Yeah, you can see these things all feed on themselves, and then once the the immoderates, the extremists start dominating the meetings, the meetings become shouting match and ordinary people then say, this is not for me. I want to solve problems. I don't want to. Mm -hmm. So it feeds on itself. The more extremists there are, the more extremists there are, so to speak. Yep. But also, <laughs> let's just make the point to go back to that question of our over-politicized culture, right? That like sometimes we think, okay, the way that we need to solve problems is to go into political infrastructures, even if we're talking about on the local level. So let's go to the school boards and we'll fight it out at the school board meeting, right? That's what we should do, right? But what we're actually saying is remember that social capital is not just built in political meetings. It's built in choral societies, going back to the Italy thing, right? It's built in um, soccer clubs and it's built in in neighborhood watch societies and it's built, you know, in things that have nothing to do with democracy, but actually have everything to do with creating that, that wellspring of generalized reciprocity in which we trust each other. We trust each other because we're having interactions that don't have anything to do with politics, that just have to do with being human and have to do with being neighbors and have to do with being in mutual aid and mutual care relationships with one another. It's actually out of those really heart-centered human interactions that this supportive net to our democracy is, is, is woven. And so that's what we have to think about, right? Our social fabric is social, not political. And so that is where we get back to this, um, this imperative of the, the film, which is join or die. Don't join a political party. Join something that you are passionate about. Join something just because you want to make friends. And in so doing, the generalized social, social capital that that creates will be a saving grace for our democracy. That's in, indeed, for people who've seen the film, the last third of the film is not about me or social capital. It's about, it shows the stories of five or six different local groups all across America, a black bicycling club in Atlanta, or um, uh, a, I guess it's, she's an Episcopal minister in um, in uh, Ohio, um, or a guy who's trying to create a fantasy bowl, bowling league in in um, in the, um, Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine, and so on. And Pete and Rebecca Davis, who we should not forget here, because they're the ones who actually did the film. I just was along for the ride, but they did the film. They went out of their way to use examples of those groups that were mostly young people many of them non-white that is it, he was what they wanted to show was these are just ordinary not they're not white do-gooders these are just ordinary people they are going to change america one town or one bicycling group at a time but they're not mostly about politics they're mostly about having fun well an immigrant guy in in, in someplace in south texas who's in a motorcycle club now that you wouldn't, it's a little bit of a, for, a, a, you know, a, 
northerner who's not into motorcycles, it's a little hard to believe that the salvation of America comes from uh, in, in the, a motorcycle club in the deep south. But that's the point I'm trying to make. It's it's not the politics of it. It's the connecting of it. Yeah. In fact, so we're spending the next year and a half creating clubs just like that um, across our community. And, and we've seen it, too, because when you when you do that, when you have those kinds of interactions with people who aren't like you, they're, they're, people's politics becomes like the 10th or 15th thing you know about them. You know so much more and it it it, it changes it changes everything. Um, and actually, I wanted to say how smart our audience is. We've got a fabulous audience. And um, one of them is beseeching us. Um, they said that they would not join organizations. I will never contribute further to making everything about politics. Increasingly, we've believed there's real power in our gatherings including diverse people, but not be about politics. And then actually another um, question comment was, what can be done to help club and organizational leaders understand that their role includes stewardship and democracy? It seems like the days are long gone when a pastor, a rabbi, a rotary club, or PTA president talked about civic duty. Any ideas how to change that? Well, the person's right. And um, let me give an example from the last time that seems not at all about, you know, uh, making democracy work. It seems like about having fun. And that is the Boy Scouts. Same thing, I told the same story about the Girl Scouts. So the Boy Scouts, I was in the Scouts and and I was in the Cub Scouts. And, And I thought, did I think it was about politics? It never crossed my mind that it was about politics. Um, it was about camping and, you know, learning um, the tracks of animals and a little bit about birding and and then just having fun on a hike. But the people who created the scouts were really smart. Every scout in America, in order to be a scout, had to memorize the following um phrase i'm going to raise my three fingers and say impressed a scout this is i'm now i'm 83 and i learned this when i was eight so whatever that is that's a long time (laughs) 75 years ago um a scout is trustworthy loyal helpful friendly courteous kind obedient brave clean and reverent i think that was 12 and now now step out of that and ask well, how about those virtues? Are that very, it's, you know, maybe it sounds old fashioned, but wait a minute. Trustworthy? No, for goodness sakes, trustworthy. We'd like people to be trustworthy. Helpful? Yeah, of course, helpful. We want people to be helpful. Trustworthy, helpful, courteous, kind. Still, we're, we're, that's, that's the kind of character we want to build. Brave seems a little bit, you know, militaristic. Clean seems a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit over the edge. <laughs> Um, brave, clean, and reverent. I've, I've not forgot them all. But what I'm trying to say is, they were in God. They were engaged in when the scouts. What they were doing to me as a kid in the in the in the late 40s, actually, the, without my even knowing it, I thought I was having fun. They were inculcating in me a set of values that are really important, and that laid the groundwork way back at the beginning when they were founded back in the in the progressive era. Um, lay the groundwork for the moral reawakening that I'm talking about. This is, it's not separate things. Scouts was about having fun, but also 
engaging in the process of inculcating a set of morals about being kind and being trustworthy. And I'm not quite trying to say we need the scouts. I know that the scouts have had a lot of problems since then. I'm trying to say as it was a very holy thing. And it was not about politics, but it had huge effects. And those are places that we learn, you know, in, in all of the civic associations that we have that we're not having now, we learn certain ways of being with people. We learn about compromise. We learn about some of the the virtues of, of democracy. And and that just happens naturally. And those things are not happening now. Right. That's that's true. Yeah. I mean, those civic skill sets really transfer. Right. And I think that people who are part of and, and one of the things that has happened is that our clubs have become really professionalized. They're run by people that we pay to run them, right? Instead of being these kind of, you know, wonky, ugly, volunteer-led associations that don't always work the best and aren't maybe the best thing going on a Friday night, but by golly, they're run by the people who are members. And I think that, you know, um, the the church that I'm a member of does this really well, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's an entirely lay-led thing. And what that means is I had the same experience that Bob did. Not only was I experiencing moral formation, but I was experiencing how to give a speech, how to run a meeting, how to get people to sign up to bring food to a dinner, you know, how to visit people who were sick. Like there wasn't somebody that we paid to do all of those things. I had to learn to do those myself from the time that I was about 12 years old. And as a result of that, those skills transfer into the public square. So that when I see something that's going wrong in my community, I know how to rally people around it. When there's something from a civic perspective that needs a leader, well, I know how to I know how to persuade people and get them on my side. And so we, you know, civics education is great and all those sorts of things. But this sort of skill set can be picked up if you're running a bicycle club. Right. And, and that's, you know, getting back to the place where citizens are leading their own initiatives is so important. Because that's where we form ourselves culturally and morally. That's also where we form our skills as citizens. So this might be a good um, time for me to drop in uh, some questions about religion and the role yes, of religion. Please. And if you if you haven't read um, Bob's book, American Grace, um, that uh, you, you uh, contributed as well, Shaylin, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's extraordinary. And I had the opportunity to um, hear Bob speak on it a very pretty many years ago, and it just changed the way I thought about so many things. We've got a few questions from the audience. The first one is, um, do religious communities have a unique or particular role to play in this? The second question is, how much has recent failure of the churches as a community hub contributed to the disappearance of our sense of social connection? And then this question, importantly, from Rabbi Michael, is how can um, religious institutions do better? Okay. Um, Shailen has already talked a little bit about this in her in her uh, religion. And um and I'm glad we came to it. Um, people sometimes are surprised that I, and I'm basically a secular, I mean, I actually am a converted Jew, so I do know about Judaism, but I was once uh, an active Methodist, so I have, a, I have some uh, training in, in Protestant. Um, and then, of course, more recently, I spoke with the Pope, which, of course, gives me instant uh, knowledge about all of Catholic doctrine. Sorry, that was a joke. You're not smiling, but that was... <laughs> I'm smiling. Um, I'll smile for you. <laughs> um, so let me say what we learned when we did this study. I won't go through all the details of the math and so on, although there's a lot of it in there. What we discovered, first of all, 
is that in general and on average, controlling for everything else, religious people tend to be nicer than other people. By which I mean, you name some measure of niceness, like volunteering or philanthropy or paying attention to a neighbor or helping old ladies across the street, a whole range of things that we've been able to measure. And we measure them for everybody in America. And, you know, some people are pretty helpful and nice and others are not so nice. And there are a lot of things that contribute to that. But controlling for everything else, you're, um, if, you go to, if you go to church or if you're involved in a church community, you're very much a, a lot more likely to volunteer. And not just to volunteer to be an usher, but to volunteer for Little League and to give to charity. But not just to put money in the, in the plate, in the you know, to in the offering plate, but also to, you know, give money to other local charities and similarly to to join join in the civic activities, but not just other religious activities, but other civic activities. So, and a lot of my academic friends are surprised at that and we're skeptical initially, but actually the science there turns out to be ironclad. I don't usually say the science is ironclad because we can see people we will follow the same people over time, and we can see if you if you join a church, you become nice. You didn't start out being. It was not just that nice people go to church; it's that people who go to church become nicer than they were before they went to church. That's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is even more striking. It's not believing. It's not your what your, your theology is. It's whether you go to whether you're involved in the church community. What I mean by that, it doesn't matter. It turns out for being nice. It doesn't matter whether you go to church regularly or pray every day. What matters is do you go to church suppers? That is, if you're in a religious community, there's something about being in religious groups, a prayer group, or, you know, in Jewish congregations, uh, often it's a havara. That's the name for a little group of people who get together in the congregation. But, and they don't get together to pray. They get together to, you know, have fun and, and celebrate birthdays and that kind of stuff. But it turns out, that's really important. So here's the fact that people find shocking, but it is a fact. I'll rest my, I have rested my entire academic um, you know, reputation on this. If you are an atheist, you don't believe in God at all, but you go to church suppers a lot. And you might say, well, how, how would that happen? How would somebody who's an atheist go to church suppers? Answer spouses. So you're... Man or woman doesn't matter. You're an atheist, but you know your spouse is not, and she goes to church suppers, and and therefore you go to church suppers. You turn out to be nicer in all these ways I've described, helping old ladies cross street and so on, than a unbelievably devout person who prays every day and sits in the pews alone praying. If you pray alone, just like bowling alone, you're not any nicer than the average. Joe on the street. It's not the it's not the content of the religion. It's the content of the religious community. And what one thing uh, the the person who co-authored that book with me, along with Shailen, is a guy named David Campbell. And David and I say it's 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 those those communities are like supercharged social capital. Something about a religious community. It, or, you know, like a Havara or a group that meets, who just meets to discuss books, but centered around religion, has even more power than going to a bowling league. And I'm a big defender of bowling leagues. You know what I'm trying to say? So 
it's one way to put this is it's very hard to imagine how we're going to be able to get how America, which is a pretty even now a pretty religious place, is going to get out of this mess unless we draw on religious. Now, I'm not saying that all religious groups are pro-democratic. That's clearly not true. There are some there's some religious groups in America that are frankly very anti-democratic. I mean, I'm talking about the I'm not talking about their belief, I'm not talking about their theology, I'm talking about their willingness to shoot guns at other people. So it's not that all religious people are great and nice, but there is something special about most religious people that makes them predisposed to be nice to other people, and that's a huge resource for the country. And the fact that it's declining means that's another declining resource that we have. So um, so here, a question from the audience that I wanted to ask is, what can an individual do now? given what is facing us? Yeah, I mean, so many of our problems feel so big and not only big, but kind of distant, right? I mean, so if we take the problem of political polarization, for example, I can't control whether Congress is going to, you know, have a no confidence vote for a member of their own party. You know, I can't, how am I supposed to influence that, right? Um, or, you know, disinformation. We, have, we haven't even touched on social media. That's a huge one. And there's no time for that. But, but you know, we all know disinformation is a huge problem for a democracy, right? Um, and I think it's really easy to despair because those things feel so far out of our control. But we have to remember that during the upswing, before the upswing started, there were shifts happening in society that left people feeling equally out of control. There were shifts happening in the economy and in politics and in society and in culture that just felt like they were too big and too far out of people's reach. And so the solution is actually to focus on what we can control. And the hopeful message of this is that actually that turns out to have outsized consequences. So if you go and learn the name of your neighbors, become one of the small percentage of Americans who actually know the first names of their neighbors. Then become someone who joins a club, or, or if you don't see a club that you want to join, create one, right? I, I, these small acts wave, weave these invisible threads of connection that are what's going to save us. I mean, the data on that is so clear, and it's really hard to believe that the things that I do day to day on a one-on-one basis are somehow going to save America. But this is what we're here to tell you, is that actually it's the only thing that probably will, right? There isn't going to be some piece of legislation or some political entrepreneur that's going to come along and wave a magic wand and save us. We have to rebuild what we have lost. And the way that we do that is one human interaction at a time. And show up. We show up and we and we show up and this point hasn't been emphasized enough. So I'll just take a moment to make it. We show up not just for people who look like us. We make a deliberate effort to show up for people who don't look like us, whether that's racially, whether that's economically, whether that's religiously, that we make the effort to cross those lines of difference because we are engaged in something that has never been done before, which is trying to make a mass multicultural democracy succeed. We have no choice. It's a multicultural democracy. It's diverse. We have to own the fact that in order for that to succeed, we have to weave our social fabric actively across lines of difference. 
So our experience is so similar over the couple of decades almost we've been doing this. And it's really surprising, but I say all the time that the hardest part of what we do is getting a diverse group of people into the room. Once we've got them into the room, we can shift their opinions towards each other quite easily in a positive direction because there's this just amazing human sort of superpower that when we can know people, it it changes everything. Yeah, I, there's one more. I agree completely with that. The jargon, not that this adds much, but I will say that there is this comes into social capital theory. There are different kinds of networks. We've talked about social capital as being networks and and some net, some networks cross um, lines of difference and some don't. But the ones that don't are called bonding social capital. And I'm not opposed to if you if you get sick and people bring you chicken soup are likely to be your bonding social capital. That's not bad. But in a democracy like the one we have, inevitably like the one we have, you need a lot of bridging social capital, but bridging social capital is harder to build than bonding social capital. My grandmother knew that. My grandmother said, Bobby, birds of a feather flock together. She didn't think I'd understand the jargon so of, of bridging and bonding social capital, but that's what she meant. So she used the avian metaphor, but what she was trying to say was it's just harder to build connections across these lines of difference, and they're very important, and that means we've got to be intentional about doing it. I've now just added the you know, the academic or, or intellectual substructure of what the two of you have already uh, said. I wanted to add one more thing, mm-hmm. however, um, and that is, this is on the issue both of, of, um, of uh, moral reawakening and on the issue of how, how can we make this happen? Parents have a huge role, huge role in this. Because parents are the primary inculcators of values. I'm now going to sound like a right-wing radical because I think the conventional family, or at least a family, I mean, there are, in my family, there are non-conventional families. There are people who are, you know, one of my granddaughters is married to a non-binary person. So I, I know that there are real families that are not don't look like conventional families. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real families in which People care for one another, and especially they care for the children they're raising, and that is just crucial because that's where we're going to get this. This is not we're not going to solve this in the next. We've been saying this repeatedly. This is not going to be solved. I'll be lucky if it's solved in my lifetime. We're certainly not going to solve it in the next two years. So if you are lucky enough to have, as Shailene is, to have the care for two other human beings for at least 15, 20 years of their lives, you have a huge leverage. And I'm talking to every person out there. Your children and your grandchildren are an enormous asset to you in changing America. And it's, you know, it's it seems like, well, what am I doing? I'm just worrying about the future. That's right. This is a big problem. It's going to take a long time. It's We owe it to them to give them the values and the skills that will enable them to fix the problems that we've left behind. That's so beautiful. Uh, Shaylin said something during our prep call that I just wanted to make sure I repeated because I thought it was so inspiring. Um, You said, we've been moving from crisis to crisis to crisis. Beads are the crisis and the thread of all of it is person to person connection. Yeah, the, the, everybody asks, what's the solution to the latest crisis? Black Lives Matter movement, you know, black, black, um, police violence against black people, um, COVID, uh, you, you know, you name whatever it is, 
uh, January 6th, right? And and it turns out that the solution to all those problems is the same thing, that we have to get back into relationship with one another. We have to do it at the cost of our time. We have to do it at the cost of our energy. We have to do it at the cost of our hearts, right? If that's what has to change, then we have to go to that space. And I think you know, what Bob is arguing for, and I am too, is we can't be afraid to frame this as a moral conversation, that this isn't just about democracy. It's also about what's right and what we believe is important. It's about virtue and values. And that's an okay conversation to have. And the reason that it's okay is not just because we think it is, because the data clearly shows that those are the things that shifted first the last time we got ourselves out of a mess just like the one that we're in now. And, and I, all of these things are, are good for us too, as humans, they make yeah. us happier and happier and less lonely, less isolated. So a little, so, longer, a little longer. In as much as there's a silver bullet, the surprising silver bullet is this, go and meet your neighbors and figure out how to enter into a caring mutual relationship with them, particularly those that don't look like you. So I'm gonna close with some of Pete's words uh, from Join or Die. And remember, you can watch the movie and you should watch the movie sometime before Sunday. It's not in theaters. Um, What's always been funny to me about what Bob discovered halfway around the world many years ago is that we don't actually need graphs to understand what makes democracy work. We can see that the perfect constitution or the perfect education system or the perfect economy isn't enough if we're not participating. We make democracy work. Um, and I wanted to say to you, Bob, before we closed, that um, that that what may not be obvious, you know, when we started this organization years ago, there was a handful of civic organizations that did this sort of bridge building work. Now there are over 400 organizations. Many of our partners are here tonight and on this call. Um, lots of people, we had over 600 people register, lots of people who've just changed their lives completely. Um, to take up to, to to take up this mantle, they they've heard you, they've heard what you've said, um, and they're kind of the. You have to watch the movie to know this, so this will make you watch the movie. But they're kind of the saguaro cactus that you talk about in the film, and I just wanted you to know that they're there, and they're some of the most incredible people I have ever met. Um, so that that's what you have done and continue to do. Um, and I, thank you for that. I, of course, I'm very grateful for saying that. Um, and I trust you when you say that. One of the reasons that, it, that that's true is that a day doesn't go by, and today did not go by, without my getting a letter from somebody, you know, a firefighter in Buffalo or whatever, saying, thanks for your work. For this book that was written, you know, more than 25 years ago. So I appreciate your saying that. We've, got, we've all got a lot of work to do. I wish I'd done a better job, but I think we've all got a lot of work to do. Done a spectacular job. You've gifted us this inspiring description of what the last upswing looked like, a beautiful vision of what our upswing might look like. So I think I wanted to just close by giving you all a chance to um, say anything that you that you want to say, but then also to you know just pick uh, paint that picture. So that it's etched in our hearts of what what it looks like when we're we're beginning to do the right thing. Um, I'll I'll jump in first so that I can give Bob the last word. Um, I think that 
It's important to remember, particularly when we're talking about the story of the upswing, that we're not looking back to the 1960s and saying, hey, you know what, that was such a golden era in American history. Let's recreate that. What we're saying is we did a lot of things wrong in that period, particularly, you know, the sort of um, the fact that our we was racialized meant that that upswing had knit into it the seeds of its own demise, right? And so it's absolutely true that we want to recreate the things that were great about that upswing period, but that any upswing that we want to create again today has to have full inclusion and diversity at its absolute center, not as an afterthought, as something that we're going to kick down the road to get to later, which is actually the mistake that the progressives made during the first upswing. And so I just want to make sure that we close with that, that that there are so many ways in which we can look backward into this um, moment when when social capital was high for a vision for what society could look like. But there are also ways in which we don't want to recreate that same vision. We have to create something totally new. And, and that's the exciting thing, is that we can take some of the tools that those who built the last upswing use, but completely modernize them and, and, and do this in a way in which we really do succeed in creating a multicultural democracy. It's, it's literally never been done before. And we could be the generation that sets that in motion. Um, of course, I agree with everything Shailen said. I want to just uh, close briefly with um, by mentioning what I think is the most crucial target, not only of my work but also of the film, and and that is young people. I want to. I've got seven grandchildren, whom, to whom I'm very close. God, thank God, I'm very close to my seven grandchildren, and they're wonderful kids. And that I I see in them the challenge, but also the promise of moving America in a better direction. And that that's consistent with what happened the last time. Last time it was young people, really young people who did the work. Old people were useful to say, I know it doesn't have to be this way, but young, but only young people can have the imagination that will fix America in the 2030s. I'm long gone in the 2030s, but my grandchildren will still be around and I want to get them to see, you didn't cause this problem. My generation caused this problem. It's just it's no fair, but you know, you just happen to be the generation that is called, if you will, take up the call to fix America. But you can do it. That's the main message of this book. It's not, nothing of this is guaranteed. It won't happen without you, but it, it could happen with you, especially if you work with other people. So I think it's a hopeful message, but it's, an, it's a call to action. It's not a call to just pay attention. It's a call to do something. Thank you both from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of our audience. I, I, this has been an incredibly meaningful conversation. We are so grateful. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and sign off, unfortunately. Um, on behalf of Florida Humanities and the Village Square and our extraordinary streaming partners growing these civic roots every single day, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Remember to watch the inspiring film, Join or Die, this weekend and grab a copy of Bowling Alone and the upswing and get going on getting out there and meeting people. Good night, everyone, and join a club. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I get such a thrill from being in the room, albeit virtually, but just in there and listening to a real-time conversation with arguably one of the most on-point thinkers of our time. 
I've been reading this book about the great debate between Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke in the late 1700s. And what resonates about their writing and their thinking is that they had such clear diagnoses about what was happening in their time in Europe. And at that time, uh, a very young United States. Now, fast forward 250 years, plus or minus, and you have someone with an equally clear diagnosis about what's ailing our civic health. And then to have Shailen Romney Garrett joining Dr. Putnam, it's just the dose of good medicine we need, pointing the way forward with a prescription for what ails us, but one that's one that's very doable. We can all do this. We can all participate in this. I was very encouraged, and I hope you were too. With that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members in supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. And while you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter. There's so much going on. It's such an exciting season. So many exciting events that the organization has planned. Uh, so go to Village Square's newsletter. All you have to do is go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for that sign-up box. Funding for this podcast was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to Join or Die, a part of the Unum Digital Series, with guests Dr. Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't think or look like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.